their slide. Now, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and uh, turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. And in the Bibles we provide, you can turn to page 1012. Page 1012. What was a great week of soccer nights. It was a full week. It was a fun week, and, uh, and everybody served with excellence. Uh, we were grateful to have our sending church with us. As many of you met Pastor Dwayne Melioni last week as he brought the word to us, and, and they were with us this week, and that was an encouraging time, and they served well. Um, as you remember, last week in James chapter 3, our sending church pastor, Pastor Dwayne, shared with us about the power of the tongue. And he said this, he said, a faith-controlled tongue can do a lot of good. You guys remember that? A faith-controlled tongue can do a lot of good, but an uncontrolled tongue can do immense danger. And so this is why James says, not many of you should become teachers, because as we teach and as we communicate, our words hold us to a higher judgment before others. Well, today in our passage, James continues addressing the church community with his central concern of these violent quarrels that was going on among their midst. And so he turns today to the theme of wisdom. And so today we're going to look at heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom as, as God guides us to think rightly about wisdom. But I want to pose a question as we begin to think about wisdom. Why is wisdom so essential? J.I. Packer, one of my favorite authors, um, who wrote a book called Knowing God, it's a classic says this. He says, receiving wisdom from God is like being taught to drive. Now let's go back a little bit. For some of you, this is to look forward to the day when you're going to learn to drive. For others of you, we're going to think back for maybe a few years, maybe many years for some of us, um, learning to drive. I'm not sure, I'm, I'm sure most of you know, but that in Massachusetts, you must obtain a driver's education certificate before you can apply for a license. I'm sure you knew that. Now, you guys know I've, I've been here about four years. I'm from North Carolina. Things are a little different in North Carolina. But when you, when you go, what's, what's the purpose of this education? You've got to go to get this driver's education. You've probably seen these cars driving around. They've got the sign on the roof. Maybe you've been behind them and you've wanted to lay on the horn. Um, for instance, this past week, I was behind one. You've got two lanes and they're driving in the middle of both lanes, like right on the line. I'm like, nobody can get around them. You want to lay on the horn at the same time you see and you're like, okay, I want to extend grace to them. Well, the RMV lists seven, sorry, 11 experiences that it says a potential driver must be exposed to as part of their driver's education. Now, North Carolina, it's like one or two. You know, it's like start the car, get on the road. You know, up here, you've got a lot more to deal with. I'll just share some of these with you because you may even need to learn some of these today. 
as I read through these, I'm like, you know, these will probably be helpful for some in our congregation. So just pretend this is a three-minute driver's education crash course for those of you that need to freshen up. So the first thing you need to experience, highway driving, including entering and exiting, changing lanes, and passing a vehicle. Some in Boston still have not figured this out. Navigating an intersection without traffic signals. Number three, yielding to traffic and merging with traffic. We don't like to do that one very well up here. Number four, pulling off the road safely. Number five, navigating a rotary or roundabout. I think many could use instructions. Now, let me just take a few seconds here. When you're coming up to a rotary, you must yield unless there's a stop sign. You yield to everybody in the rotary, and you always go to your right, okay? You don't go to the left to get the shortcut to the road on the left. You go to the right after you've yielded. Once you're in the rotary, you've got the right of way, so you keep going until you get out of the rotary. Everybody got that? (laughs) Number six, stopping for pedestrians. Look, Boston's a walking city. One of my greatest fears moving up here is that I'm going to hit somebody. I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm just, you, you got to, when I talk to my friends in the South, they're like, you know, what's life like? I'm like, man, I haven't, I haven't seen a speed limit sign. I don't know how, how long. When I get in my car, I've got one foot on the brake, and I'm just like looking for people. Like, you can't go fast enough. So, like, I just start driving. I come to church today, I'm just looking for people so I can hit my brakes. Number six. Number seven. Varying vehicle speeds to accommodate driving setting and road conditions, including the snow. Number eight, parking the vehicle in a parking space on the side of the road and in a parking lot. This is parallel parking that I think some still struggle with here in Boston. I see some hands being raised, maybe. Um, Number nine, backing the vehicle in and out of a parking space. Ten, making three-point turns. And 11, starting, stopping, and turning the vehicle on a hill. You guys good? Everybody ready to roll? What is the purpose of this? Why do you need to have these 11 experiences? Is the goal of this education just to introduce a potential driver to these experiences? To say, hey, they've seen the experience, they're good to go. No, you're in this driver's education car, you've got your trainer with you, and what's the trainer doing? As you come up on a rotary, he's looking at his list here. Yep, this one's number number five. I need to do some teaching here. The goal isn't just that you would experience the rotary, but you would experience and learn how to navigate it in the right way. Correct? And so it's not just, the point isn't just to learn the experience. The goal is that a potential driver would be trained how he should respond in each of these circumstances. Because you know what? If he doesn't learn, what's at stake? I mean, life's at stake, right? You could hit a pedestrian. You get in a rotary going the wrong way and you hit somebody head on. I mean, you're talking about physical injury. You're talking about life. You're talking about death. There are consequences. And so we want to learn to drive in the right way to minimize those things. And so J.I. Packer says, wisdom is like learning to drive a car, and he says this. What matters in driving is the speed 
and appropriateness of your reactions. Your reactions to the things and the soundness of your judgment as to what scope a situation gives you. So saying what matters is how you respond to this situation that you're faced. He says you don't ask yourself why the road should narrow or screw itself into a dog leg wiggle just where it does. You don't ask why the van should be parked where it is. You don't ask why the driver in front of you should hug the crown of the road so lovingly. He says you simply try to see and do the right thing in the actual situation that presents itself. And then he says this, the effect of wisdom is to enable you and me to do just that in the actual situations of everyday life. Why is wisdom so essential? We're in this series on James all day, every day. I guarantee you today, you are gonna be confronted with some situations and wisdom teaches us how we are to respond in a way that gives glory and honor to God and protects us from harm and danger. So today, James challenges us to put our wisdom on trial and to expect itself to see if it's from God or man. So I want you to pretend today as we read the word, as if you're in a, not a driver's education training, but you're sitting in the front seat and what you're being trained on is wisdom. And you're gonna be inspected on whether you're gonna pass the test. And so we're gonna put your wisdom on display and we're gonna ask God to inspect it and to lead us in his perfect way. So read with me in James 3, beginning in... Verse 13, the word of God says this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, And sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need wisdom. Gotta echo the challenge of James 1 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God, we cry out today. We need wisdom. We need you to teach us. And we beg and ask that you would give it generously to us. Would you give us humility to hear your word, to inspect our wisdom, 
that it would be from above and it would be God honoring. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There are three truths I want to share with you today as we learn about wisdom. And the first one is this. Honestly inspect your wisdom. Honestly inspect your wisdom. Look how James starts off here in 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? I'll just pose that question. How many of you claim to be wise? I mean, you just picture James. He's at the church there, and, and he's, he's reading this letter to them. He's sharing them. He's like, all right, you claim to be wise. Who's wise? How many, you know, who knows, if he got them to stand up or if he asked them to raise their hand. It's like, you claim to be wise. You claim to have understanding. He says, you come and step forward so that we can analyze the legitimacy of your claim. If you claim to be wise, he says, I want to know if it's true wisdom. I want to analyze it. I want to see what type of wisdom you have. And so this builds on the challenge that we've already heard in the book of James. James 1.22, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. We also have been challenged in James 2, 14 through 26. Faith apart from works is dead. Let's say that again. Faith apart from works is dead. Thank you. So James assesses their wisdom, but here's the interesting point. When he assesses their wisdom, he's not asking, okay, let's have a theological conversation. When he says, who is wise among you, what does he say? Look here at the text. Look at verse 13. Who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James says this, I want to see your wisdom on display. So the interesting thing is what we learn from this is that true wisdom produces good works. If you claim to be wise, he says, all right, I want to see your conduct. Put it on display in good works that display meekness and humility. True wisdom produces good works. And then a second point, true wisdom produces humility and meekness. So if you're here today and you're putting your wisdom on trial and display, I would just pose this question. How does your wisdom produce good works in your life? And then second, would you be characterized as a person of humility? You see, wisdom is not just intellectual, but for James, it is practical, and it must always be accompanied by humility. This is the opposite of what we're going to see in a second. We just read that earthly wisdom is motivated by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So we just hold these up here. On the one hand, you've got bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. On the other hand, you have humility. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are going to correspond with earthly wisdom. Humility is going to correspond with heavenly wisdom. And so what is wisdom? Let me just give you a brief def- definition here. As we think about wisdom, as we continue to talk about wisdom, wisdom is the skillful practice of applying knowledge to the matter of practical living. I'm going to say it again. Wisdom is the skillful practice 
of applying knowledge to the matter of practical living. It's how to take the knowledge of God and apply it practically to the circumstances you're facing in life. And so as you inspect your wisdom, one, it ought to produce good works. Second, it ought to be accompanied with humility. So if your wisdom were taken for a road test today, would you pass the inspection? Would there be good works accompanied with it? Would there be humility? That's the first truth. The second truth that I want us to get today starts in verse 14, and it's this. We should reject earthly wisdom. As in typical Old Testament wisdom literature, James divide wisdom into two realms. You've got earthly wisdom, and you have heavenly wisdom, or you have man's wisdom, and you have God's wisdom. How is earthly wisdom? Wisdom characterized by, we see this in verse 14, but you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So first of all, we see the characteristics of earthly wisdom. What does he say? He gives us two characteristics. The first one, bitter jealousy. And the second one, selfish ambition. As we think of bitter jealousy, this refers to a harsh and resentful attitude towards others. Now let me just set the stage here for a second. James is addressing the church community. Just stepping back from last week. He said, leaders, you should not be eager to teach because you're going to be held with a higher judgment. He's talking about their church community now. Now he's moved on to wisdom, but when he's talking about wisdom, he's obviously talking about relationships. I mean, who do you have bitter jealousy with? People, right? I mean, it's assumed. Bitter jealousy, as I just shared here, is a harsh and resentful attitude towards others. Let's pause for a second. We can't miss this. What jealousy is in your heart right now? Who are you looking at that there's just envy and jealousy? Somebody has something that I don't have and I want it. What is that? Anybody wrestling with jealousy today? Bitter jealousy? Second, he says selfish ambition is the other characteristic. This refers to self-seeking that cultivates antagonism and factionalism. If, you are, if you're overcome with selfish ambition, you will seek your agenda at any cost. So I want to just ask, what is it today that you would do anything to get? Who would you hurt to get that? You see, when we're overcome with selfish ambition, our self is elevated to supreme, and we don't care who we hurt or what we've got to do to get what we want. Now let's pose another question. If these two characteristics become a staple at Redemption Hill Church, what do you think the future holds? We had a members meeting this morning. 
Tanner, our lead pastor, held up our 2014 vision. Hey, let's pray through this. We went over a budget and how we're spending money. Hey, if we are overcome with selfish ambition, do you know what that looks like in a church? And it happens in churches. You have individuals who have certain agendas in the church, and it doesn't matter who they're going to hurt or even the leadership to get what they want. Or what about bitter jealousy within the local church? Look, we're a family. We're a part of the body of Christ. So we see the characteristics of earthly wisdom. We're going to see the result of it in a second, but first of all, let's just see the origins of it. We see some characteristics in the text here of the origins of this wisdom. James says, this wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, given a progression of bad to worse. It is earthly. It, this wisdom that is characterized by selfish ambition and jealousy is limited to earth. It's narrow, narrow in its perspective, and it fails to consider God's realm and God's will. Now, if we were to hold up selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and ask, hey, does God have anything to say about either of these? What do you think? Well, maybe I'll just pose another question. Why is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition so destructive? I'll give another follow-up question. And what's this world about? Those two characteristics, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, describes a world that revolves around who? Me. I mean, when I'm overcome with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, I'm the king of the universe, and this is my world, and I'm gonna get what I want, what will please John. And yet as we step back and look, we see the scriptures that is that God is the rightful king of the world and everything. He is completely sovereign. He is the just, loving, righteous king, worthy of all glory and honor. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. We were created to magnify God. And when we're overcome with selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, we're robbing God of honor and glory that is due his name by elevating ourselves as supreme. So it's earthly and it fails to consider God's realm and will. It is unspiritual. It is characterized by our fallenness, by an unsanctified heart, by an unredeemed spirit, and then it is demonic. Don't miss this, and I don't want to downplay that. It is generated by Satan's forces, and it results in what? Verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. This connotes a, a chaotic frenzy of fighting in the church. There is nothing that Satan wants more in this church than if he can get us disordered and fighting with one another. You guys hear that? 
There's nothing that Satan would want more at Redemption Hill Church than for us to be envious and jealous and have our own agenda, which is going to lead to disorder and fighting. Why is that so detrimental? Because why do we exist? Why does Redemption Hill Church exist? We exist to glorify God by living out his mission as a community transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We exist for the great commission to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples to the ends of the earth. And if we are fighting with one another, there's no way we're gonna be able to give attention to taking the gospel to the nations. And so if Satan can fill our conversations with fighting and quarrel with one another, we will be distracted and there's no way we could be unified for the sake of the Great Commission. So I want to plead with you as you evaluate and put your wisdom on trial and as you inspect it, as you see relationships that are broken or have been broken in Redemption Hill, you need to pursue repentance and reconciliation so that the devil is not given an opportunity to come in and destroy the good and great thing that God is doing in our church. So we should reject earthly wisdom. Let me just pose another question. How can you be freed from your jealousy and envy? You're here today and you're saying, yep, John, you're talking exactly to me. I'm just consumed with jealousy. I'm looking around and I see what everybody else has and what I don't have and I want it. I'm consumed with selfish ambition. I've got this great plan for my life. I know it. You're talking about me. This world revolves around me. What do you do? As we've said, at the root of all of this is that you have become your own idol. And God has been dethroned. Jealousy completely ignores the provision of God in your own life. When you're looking at others and jealous of what they have and what you don't have, most likely you haven't even stepped back to think and be grateful for the many provision God has given in your life. So oftentimes, Jealousy overlooks the provision of God and self-ambition elevates yourself to the place of God. You wanna make a name for yourself. You want your plan, but this is not the characteristic of true wisdom. Let me share a verse with you. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practice steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What does the Lord want us to boast in? Not in my wisdom, not in my might, not in my riches, but that that he understands and knows me, that we know God, that we have a relationship with God. And so if you're here today and you're overcome with envy and jealousy, as we looked last week, I can't control your tongue. 
What's got to happen to control your tongue? What's the solution? Anybody remember what the solution was? It's a solution on the inside. Until your heart is changed, what comes out of your mouth will not be changed. In the same way, your bitter jealousy and envy and self-ambition overflows from a wicked and sinful heart. We are all sinners before God. Because of our sin, our desires don't turn outwardly to God and others, but they turn inwardly to serve ourselves. And so if you're overcome with bitter jealousy and envy today, I would plead with you that yourself has to die. Jesus says to all of his followers, he says, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and come follow me. The very reason that Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross was to pay the penalty for our bitter envy and jealousy and selfish ambition so that if we would turn to him, we would find forgiveness and restoration and redemption. And so today, when when Jeremiah says that you would boast, that you understand and know the Lord, that he practices love and justice and righteousness, that you would see the love and righteousness displayed in the cross and boast that Jesus came to save and forgive you and that you know God. That's what you were created for. So if we're gonna reject earthly wisdom, we must die to ourselves, And then finally, we must pursue heavenly Wisdom. James now turns from the wisdom of earth to the wisdom above in verse 17. And he says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Heavenly wisdom is characterized by humility that produces peace. I want you to see the results of each each of these. Earthly wisdom is characterized by selfish ambition and jealousy, and what results is disorder, whereas heavenly wisdom is characterized by humility and all of these fruits and characteristics that flow from it and result in peace. You see that there in verse 18? And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we've got, on one hand, heavenly wisdom and peace, and on the other hand, earthly wisdom and disorder and every evil practice. Let's do this. I want you to look at these characteristics here. And as we read through them, will you put your wisdom on trial? Does it match up? Heavenly wisdom, James says, first of all, is pure. I'm just going to pause here for a second. This purity actually is the primary virtue of all of these. All of these rest on these dimensions of overall purity. And actually, we could go back to the Sermon on the Mount and see a lot of these being paralleled here. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure and heart. Let me ask you this. A pure heart is one that pursues blamelessness, being above reproach. Would you say that your life is characterized right now by purity? 
And when I say purity, I'm not just talking about sexual purity, which is usually what we think of. I'm just talking about an honesty, a sincerity. Man, I'm real. What you see is who I am. I'm not putting on a show for anybody. I'm pure. I'm genuine. I'm authentic. This is, this is who I am. This is what it, what it is. It's a moral blamelessness, a spiritual integrity, a moral sincerity. He continues on. The second one he mentions is peaceable. Notice, notice how the word peace shows up a couple of times here. It's after pure, it's the first fruit, peaceable. And then that verse 18, you're going to see peace fill up a couple of times here. Is because peace is ultimately what he's after. James would want nothing greater in the Christian community than for there to be peace. Because when there's peace, spiritual vitality can thrive. The Great Commission can be fulfilled and accomplished. So would you say your life is characterized by peace promoting? You know what Matthew 5, 9 says in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the peacemakers. So it's not just blessed are the pure. Blessed are the peacemakers. Are you the person that's actually the peace breaker? Or I would even say there are a couple of different ways that you can engage in conflict on a spectrum. On one side of the spectrum, you have the peace breakers. They're the ones that are ultimately always engaging, fighting, causing conflict. Peace breakers. On the other side of the spectrum are peace fakers. What does a peace faker do? A peace faker always flees conflict. So on the one hand, you've got one that's always heading it, face on. On the other hand, the, the peace faker knows there's conflict, but just ignores it and flees it and doesn't want to face it. Neither of these are godly responses. So where's your tendency? Is your tendency to be the peace breaker or is your tendency to be the peace faker? When we wrap up today, I'm going to give you some, some characteristics of a peace maker. And we'll come back to those in a second. Notice this. This is the complete opposite of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. It's somebody who's actually making peace, who's restoring instead of bringing disorder. What's the other one there? Let's keep going. He says gentle. Does your life display gentleness in your words? in your interactions, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, showing concern for those who suffer pain and hardship, the ability to forgive. He says here, impartial and sincere, without hypocrisy. This is what describes heavenly wisdom. And so as you're putting your wisdom on trial and you're looking at these qualities, do you see these in your life? You know, let me give you a helpful practice. Go ask your best friend if they see any of these in your life. Because you know what our tendency is to do? We, we probably think better of ourselves than we really are. So if you're married, go ask a spouse. If you've got a roommate and you're single, go ask your roommate. This will be a sanctifying tool in your life this week. Hey, do you, do you see these characteristics in my life? Where are some areas that I can grow in my pursuit of heavenly wisdom? 
Now, what are we talking about here? I mean, we're talking about when you leave church today, when this service is over, you're gonna be faced with some circumstances where you can respond either this way or with jealousy and envy and self-ambition. So what does it look like in your conversations, in your relationships to be pure, to be peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, impartial and sincere? What if this is what characterized Redemption Hill Church. That's what James is saying. That is nothing greater than he would desire is that our relationships and our engagements would be characterized by this. And if it were, he would say, yes, you've got it. That's heavenly wisdom. That's how God wants you to apply his knowledge to every sphere of life. And so the origin of this is heavenly. Now notice when we read through the text, he says, the wisdom that comes from above. The wisdom that is from above. This wisdom doesn't come from mere observation, but from prayer, divine illumination, and faith. We saw this in the very beginning, James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, what do you do? Ask God. You're here today and you're saying, man, I don't have it. I don't have this wisdom. Prayer, cry out to God and ask him to give you this wisdom. Come to his word as you pray. God, teach me your wisdom and respond with faith. James says, after you pray and ask God, you must believe. Now, what is the result? The result of heavenly wisdom is peace. The result of heavenly wisdom is peace. Peace is one of the most critical attributes of a true believer. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone. Look, if there is always conflict in your life, that may be a clue that God's never changed your heart, that you haven't been made new, that you haven't been born again. But people who have, who have in, been given the spirit of God, who have been saved and come to faith in Christ, man, we pursue peace. Now, I'll just say this. If you have never found peace with God, you'll never be able to engage peacefully with others. Because you know what allows me to be a peacemaker is ultimately knowing that God is sovereign and that God is a just God and a just ruler. You know, why do we want to fight? Why do we like conflict? because we want to punish, right? You've been hurt by somebody. I'm not going to forgive. They hurt me. And so I'm not going to forgive because I want to I punish them. And I may punish them by being a peace breaker or by being a peace faker. I'll just ignore it altogether and I'll punish them that way. But when you come to understand the peace of God, and here's what I mean by that. You see, because of my sin. I'm actually an enemy of God. Romans says this. 
Romans 5. I am an enemy of God. My sin has separated me from God. But because of Christ, when I come to Christ and I believe in him and he forgives me of my sin and I see that my sin has been paid for on the cross, God, what is the goal of the gospel? Look, the goal of the gospel is not just to get into heaven with some golden streets, with all of my lost relatives. That is not the goal of the gospel. What is the goal of the gospel? The goal of the gospel is to bring me to God. You and I were created for a relationship with God and our sin makes us enemies. And so when our sin is taken care of, we can now have a relationship with God. There's no longer wrath and anger, but there is peace. And you know what? I can engage in relationships and forgive and overlook harms against me because I know ultimately God sees everything. And either they will be paid for on the cross of Christ or one day that person will pay the penalty for their sin for all of eternity. And so I can entrust myself to God because I found peace with God. So the point is this. We should seek after heavenly wisdom in order to bring the peace that God desires. Seek after heavenly wisdom in order to bring the peace that God desires. And so as a church, I want to give us some four practical points as we wrap up for what does it look like to be a peacemaker. The first one is this. It's four G's. Glorify God. The first way we make peace is we say, how can I please and honor God in this situation? That is first and utmost. And that's what our church is about. We exist to glorify God. So I want you to ask this question in every circumstance. How, is, how can I respond in a way that magnifies the glory of God? Second, get the log out of your own eye. You guys don't like that one, do you? You know what the cause of most conflict is? Look in the mirror. Our tendency is to point the finger, no, look at what they did. That's not biblical. Jesus says, you go get the log out of your own eye first. And so let me just ask you this. How, can, how, can, how have I contributed to this conflict and what do I need to do about it? That's the question you need to ask. What have you contributed and what do you need to do about it? Get the log out of your own eye. And I will say this. Um, well, let me just continue on. We're running low on time. Third one. Go and show your brother his fault. That's third, not first, not second. Go and show your brother or sister his or her fault. The question is this, how can I help others to understand how they've contributed to this conflict? So how have I contributed? I wanna help them see how they have contributed and a sin is too serious to overlook. You may say, okay, at some times, I may just overlook a sin. Because of mercy. I want to be full of mercy. So I'm just going to overlook it. But sometimes a sin is too serious to overlook if it's dishonoring to God. Second, 
if it has damaged our relationship. If something's damaged your relationship, you cannot overlook it. Third, it's hurting or might hurt other people. And then fourth, is hurting the offender and diminishing that person's usefulness for God. So if there's a relationship that has been broken, God is calling you, and I'm challenging you today, for the sake of the gospel to go and pursue peace. And if you can't do it alone, come find, you may need to come and grab two others to go with you. You may need to come and grab a leadership and say, we, we need peace, I need help. And we wanna help you with that. And then fourth, go and be reconciled. How can I demonstrate forgiveness and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict? And when I forgive somebody, I'll no longer dwell on this incident. I will not bring this incident again and hold it against them. I won't talk to others about this incident. And I won't let this incident stand between us or hinder our relationship. If we as a church will practice these, the devil will not be given a foothold to Rome. And we will be freed up to have an atmosphere of peace where we can be unified for the sake of the gospel. As you take your wisdom for a test drive, what's it revealed? Are there areas that need to be repented of? Are there relationships today that need to be restored? Is there jealousy or envy that needs to be repented of? Who do you need to make peace with today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need the power of your Spirit to fill us so that we can pursue heavenly wisdom, that we might be pure and gentle and peaceable and sincere and authentic and impartial. God, I pray against the devil's schemes that he would try to bring disunity and disorder in our midst that we would not let broken relationships tear us apart, but that we would be peacemakers. God, would you show us the sin in our own eyes? Would you give us wisdom and how we can help others see their fault? And, and would you give us a generous attitude of forgiveness that we would forgive 70 times seven? And that when we think of forgiveness, we would be reminded of the cross where you forgave us an immense debt that we didn't deserve to be forgiven. And let that motivate our forgiveness of others. God, we want peace to reign. We ask for your help. In Christ's name, amen.